You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me as she is every single week, the bewitching Christy Morris. Yes, I am here. (laughs) (laughs) Had to. Oh, man. Today is going to be fun. Uh, Man, how are you, Christy? I'm good. I'm actually excited to talk about this one, especially because I loved the 1990 version. So, Excellent. Excellent. And we uh, decided to bring Brack because, uh, well, he was a big fan of that version as well. Um, Mr. Scott. Scott, how's it going, man? Well, sir, I, I must correct you right now. I actually have never seen the 1990 version. Oh, my goodness. My Lord, I thought you had. Well, bless my heart. No, I have not. I have only read the book. Oh, oh. I see. Well, then you are well above me who has done neither. <laughs> we do not talk like that in Alabama. I'm sorry. But, or in Georgia. But considering the setting of this movie, it does seem appropriate that I would be here tonight. That's true. Yeah. I, although, uh, isn't that more of a Georgia accent? Oh, it, it, who knows whatever Hollywood <laughs> wants to do. None of us talk like that whatsoever. Exactly. <laughs> That's okay. People think we talk like Hicks in Texas, but, you know, I never talked like this either, so. Coach Taylor, what are you talking about? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Texas forever. Anyway, um... Well, we're, we are excited. We're going to be talking about The Witches that just premiered there on HBO Max. It's it's very fun to have something new to talk about. So uh, make sure you find us wherever you get your podcasts. Christy and I were just reminiscing about how wonderful it is that we have legitimately blown out of the water numbers for the 602 Club of all time. Uh, and we still have, you know, the rest of this week left. So it is fantastic. We really appreciate everybody uh, doing whatever you've been doing, keeping up. So uh, find us wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're on Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, please do give us a star rating review. Uh, we're on Twitter at the 602 Club, uh, where you can follow us and talk to us there. We love interacting with people, and honestly, we could use more followers. So please follow us. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, too, at the 602 Club TFM. Uh, and we love posting pictures and having conversations over there as well. So we would love your follow. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trackfm. Uh, you've got the listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference, where you can talk to listeners from all over the world about what's going on in the network. Uh, and then, of course, trek.fm is a great place to go. You can see all of the shows we're doing, as well as the contact section we can send Christy and I an email. Uh, and then last of all, at least, we've got some associate producers through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millette, and Daniel Noah. We really appreciate their support. Honestly, we could use your support. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm. See how you can be part of our team. 
honestly, there's some great contribution levels, but in the end, every little bit helps. So whatever you can do, please do help us out. And again, that's patreon.com slash track FM. So, well, we already answered the question of where everybody is with the source materials, uh, whether it's the book or the movie. I've read or seen neither before. Scott, you'd only read the book. Christy, had you read the book at all? No, so we've got literally every iteration of fan here. <laughs> there you go, which is great, which is great. I, I like being on the tail end of things, you know, for once. It's great. Um, and so I want to ask you then, uh, both of you too, uh, here, we we have a, then a new take on this. Um, and the people behind this, you know, really interesting. I love Guillermo del Toro, um, Alfonso Corrigan, you know, famous for many things, one being, you know, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban that he did such a great job on that people really loved in that series. You know, Robert Zemeckis is a, just a storied uh, filmmaker there. Um, and so they decide they're going to, you know, make a, this new iteration. And one of their ideas, and I wanted to ask you what you guys thought about this. One of their ideas, Tor- Toro wants to make it stop motion. Which, when I read that, I was like, oh, man, this would have been so amazing as a stop-motion film. And now I'm a little bit sad that it's not. That would have given it quite the bit of charm. I have to admit that now that I know that, I want to see that. Someone make that happen. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, don't be sorry. It's interesting because I would love to know for you, especially, Scott, how it compares to the book. Because Matt and I have never read the book, but I loved the 1990 version of the film. So, you know, I I would want to know, too, because I initially think with stop motion of like the Nightmare Before Christmas, but then I've seen it's been done with things like Return of the Jedi. And I was going, wait, where? Well, with stop motion for me, I, what I think of, you know, you think of Night Before Christmas, I thought immediately of Coraline. Okay. And thought, yeah. And how that would just really. Or Fantastic Mr. Fox. Or I mean, there's so many great stop motion films out there. But I thought of Coraline only because that book by Neil Gaiman is very much in the tone of Roald Dahl's The Witches, like this book that's for children, but mm. has an – I feel like it's almost hyperbolic to call it an edginess to it. But there's some dark stuff if you think about the fact that you're reading this book and going, this is for kids? <laughs> and it just it just blows your mind like – Wow, they used to write kids' books like that. And I hate to be like, you know, back in my day, you know, it sounded like that. But no, I mean, there's some darkness in that book that actually they didn't go into in this new version of the movie that, from my understanding, is actually in the 90s version, which I I, I want to see now. Like, I, I'm willing to, like, pay the five bucks to rent it to watch it because I was like, ooh, I need, I need to see all of it now. Yeah, I love that you brought that up about it being relevant to especially with Neil Gaiman stuff, because like I love the um, oh, gosh, what is it? Um, Good Omens show, which comes from Neil Gaiman, and they use stop motion in their intro. And so, yeah, it's perfect style choice for that kind of thing. So, yeah, actually, okay, you've both won me over. I now think it could be done again, but stop motion. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, part of the reason I, I can understand why you don't do that is because stop motion, you know, you, you really need somebody behind the scenes who understands that in a studio that understands that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So whether it's, uh, you know, the, the same studio that gives us things like, um, you know, Human Link or, uh, 
the uh, Walls and Gromit series or Chicken Run, those kind of things. Um, the same, the, the studio who might do, uh, you know, um, Nightmare Before Christmas or Fantastic Mr. Fox, you know, some great uses of, of stop motion. Oh, gosh, I mean, Isle of Dogs, you know, uh, from Wes Anderson, fantastic stop motion. So um, I, you can really do it. And I felt like as I was watching the movie, I could totally see it in stop motion too. You know how much, how well it would work because of the subject matter. Um, Scott, you mentioned too this the 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 connection with the book and and just um, I I feel like Roald Dahl has a fam- like a, a kinship with Grimm's original fairy tales where he's writing stories that are really scary and they're meant to be scary because they're meant to teach kids important lessons. And, you know, that's something we'll definitely talk about in this movie. But, you know, there is some um, tough subject matter in here um, about death and about change and all these kind of things that, like, you just don't really get. And and I feel like most of today's movies for kids you know everything seems watered down and like really happy-go-lucky and this is you know this kind of um as fun as it is there's there's kind of a slight like melancholy heart to it and that actually i i give credit to the movie i did not feel that melancholy heart in the book when i read it what i felt when i read the book was kind of a disguised happy-go-lucky while talking about deep, dark things like witches that just want to eliminate all children on the planet. Because the book is written in that very sort of British children's book style where it's like, I'm talking to you and you're a child, so you're going to completely understand everything that I'm saying to you right now because I'm writing it to you, the child. And shh, don't let the adults know that you're reading. Like, like You get this sense mm-hmm. that's like, that that opening scene in, the mo- in, in this version of the movie where it talks about your teacher or the lady at the store or all of that, like that was almost like, the screen page basically just ripped the page out of the book. It was like, no, here's the introduction because there's a prologue in the book called A Note About Witches. And that entire opening scene is that like prologue to the novel. And I, and that's the charm. Like that's the quality of writing that you get with Roald Dahl is that sort of that British wit that just makes you go, that, that's kind of, that's kind of smart. But he's writing it to kids, knowing that kids totally get what he's saying, almost as if it's a secret that the adults can't know that I know this. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that, that it's like a page straight out of the book, because they say even in the name of the film on HBO Max, Roald Dahl's The Witches. So they really wanted to make sure that it was following the source material more than just being another remake of another movie. So that makes me happy to hear. But which yeah. is kind of how I felt like uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the one with with Johnny Depp uh, feels like, which is it's it was meant to be something that was closer to the source material than it was to, you know, just trying to remake the movie, mm-hmm. which to me is is always smart. Like if you have an, a, another version of the film, either you need to differentiate yourself some way, you know, and so for for them, it sounds like here that um this does try to and it's it's something they even talk about that um this 
this version and this adaptation was meant to be uh, closer to the source material. So, uh, Scott, just as an interesting question, since you have read the book, did you feel like this is pretty close for the most part? For the most part. I mean, there were there were a couple of deviations, as there always is in adaptations, but I I didn't feel like I it was too off base. Like it it follows the general plot, changing the setting, in you know from England and Norway to you know Alabama. So it, except for that, like the the beats are there. So I the only. I guess if it's okay to talk spoilers, I mean, the only big difference is the fact that uh, the girl mouse isn't just a mouse. Like, that's not okay. a thing. Like, that's not a thing in the book or grandma having a personal run in with a grand high witch. You know, those were a couple of things that I thought, well, I like the connection there because it kind of set up like sort of an arch nemesis kind of thing. Like, oh, I remember you. Like, I thought that actually added to the grandma character in the movie. So I didn't. So there were changes I didn't mind. But for the most part, yeah, it's it's a it's a slim, less than 200 page children's book. That's perfect for a, a nice, neat little hour, 45 minute adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You mentioned too this, and this is something that you know is is very interesting that they give this version a new setting, which is instead of you know England and Norway, um, that we are in Alabama, and um, I'm wondering for you guys, you know, how this new setting works uh, for you as they tell this story. Well, and even not just the setting, but the time frame. Uh, in history when it supposedly happened um, is completely different. And it's set, you know, um, during the 60s instead of later. Um, and uh, I I thought that it was a really cool way to have the same story happen, but add something different to it that you wouldn't expect. So, I mean, me personally, I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. I think that it was the the one thing that didn't work for me with that was that um, Anne Hathaway's accent. I don't know if it was her choice as an actress or if she was told to have that kind of accent. But to me, it didn't really make sense with all of this other things going on with the time frame and the location. Even if she's trying to be like the Angelica Houston version of the Grand High Witch. It's it just seemed out of place to me. Um actually that is exact that accent is exactly how she's written in the book. Oh really? Okay. Cuz she is and th- there's one line of dialogue that Octavia Spencer and uh the young boy have on the when they're driving up to the hotel they mention Norway I think suggesting that the witches or even the Grand High Witch was from like the Netherlands or something like that. But so I think that was kind of their wink and their nod to that. But no, in the book, she is written like, this is the way that she talks. She talks of the W's of the V's. And this is exactly all oh, the wonder, the, 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 the wonder of the children. Like that is literally like, it's written in the book for you to read her with that over the top ridiculous accent. So okay. I, that's where I took the appreciation of, Oh my god, they went there. Okay, cool. 
Okay. See, yeah. And so the, I wouldn't know that since I didn't read the book. So I'm glad that you told me. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I was thinking of with this setting and, you know, changing the story to Alabama using the sixties here. Um, I really liked how well it kind of worked with what they did with the grandmother and kind of giving her this, um, you know, classic, you know, um, black grandma, you know, deep into spirituality on all sides, right? You know, like she's not just a Christian. She's also got the kind of like the voodooism and, 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 you know, the healing and like all of those things that kind of go along with that um, area of the country and specifically like, you know, uh, in that time period. Um, it, it, it really, I felt like kind of worked for them to make her a foil too for the witches, you know, um, by adding that element. And I don't know if that's at all part of the book that she has some of that there, but it just seemed to really work for the storytelling, uh, here very organically to me, even as somebody who's not read the book, um, that this would be the setting. Um, and I, I just, um, it, it made for, um, kind of, I think a, a fun setting. Um, and, uh, I just, uh, really enjoyed kind of the, the, the silliness of the, you know, the snooty, um, you know, a hotel manager and all those kind of things in, in a, in a classic Southern setting. And so to me, you know, I felt like, um, to kind of remake this and kind of make it your own, to put it in the 60s and in Alabama really worked for me and what they were trying to do with just the rest of the story. To answer your question, like, no, there was none of that sort of faith healing voodoo. Like they, the grandmother really gets fleshed out in this adaptation of the movie. And I, and I like that because I like, you said foil. It's like, okay, here's a woman who, in another time and place would have been accused of witchcraft by what she believes and practices. But yet you see her doing it in a loving, you know, uh, altruistic way rather than, you know, this evil death to the children. You know, we're we're evil for evil sake because we're witches and we're terrible people. So I thought it added a little bit of parallelism to the movie that is is actually not present in the book. So I thought there was some added depth there. Well, it it is one of those things too, where it almost um it, it's kind of adds the the idea of like there is whatever it is that we have is a tool, you know. So if we have magic, it's a tool, and how we use it is is whether or not it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. And so you know. The grandmother using this power for good, you know, like with her healings and, you know, uh, like her herbs and those kind of things, it's it's all for good. And these witches are using their power for evil. Um, and and it, what was interesting, too, is like um, even the way that they describe the witches is basically they're demons that have taken on human form that hate children, you know, <laughs> like, you know, so we have this kind of um, very uh, classic evil for evil's sake, there's nothing redeemable about them. They are just evil incarnate who are trying to do evil things to the most innocent among us, children. And um, I, you know, sometimes I think, uh, you know, especially for for this story, I think it really works 
to have that um, kind of very distinct good versus evil type of story. Yeah, that was the main thing that I was looking for to being a person who hadn't read the book, but loved the 1990 version of the movie. I was looking for a couple of big scenes to play out again. And one of them is the ballroom where they're having the witches meeting. Uh, and then two to actually see the evil playing out in how the characters of the witches look physically, like you're saying, Matt, like it's a, a physical representation of how grotesque they are on the inside as well. And that was something that I remember even as a kid watching the previous film was so disturbing was seeing the witches for the first time without all of their makeup and wigs and gloves and everything. They were just disgusting, like goblin looking people. And so having them go that far with the um, doing it a little differently this time, I think gave it something interesting that I wasn't expecting again. Um, having their mouth be sort of like a, you know, Joker's mouth or something where it's cut up each side, I thought was an interesting take on it. Um, but the nostril thing was actually the same from the other movie. You want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> right. <laughs> I, what did you guys, that's a great question. Christy, you're talking about the idea of what they look like. And I think just the idea of the witches and their design and everything. Partly, they kind of reminded me of the priestesses from the Clone Wars arc with Yoda, you know, who, oh, the, yeah. the floating priestesses. Yeah. You know, they only have three fingers, and then they have the pointed feet and everything. So, but these were like even creepier. Uh, and then, yes, they reminded me of the Joker. Like, do you want to know how I got these scars? Like, I thought the design work for that was um, wonderfully fun and. I think one of the smart things they do about this is that nothing in this movie is meant to be kind of like photorealistic in the sense of like, it's not supposed to be super scary. It's just supposed to be creepy, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. so they go a little bit more cartoony, I think on purpose because it's a kid's movie. Um, and so, but yes, the personification, I think Christy, like you said, of like that demonic nature inside that they're trying to hide is perfectly disguised with, you know, their long claw like fingers when they pull their gloves off and then mouth and those feet, which are just disgusting. And like the wig rash. <laughs> oh my oh, gosh. Oh, that was nasty. Uh, I, I will have to admit that I have held for decades now quite the crush on Anne Hathaway so I had Who some hasn't, brother? Who <laughs> I'm with you. I, I mean, pr since Princess Diaries, it's just it's just been there, and I had so many conflicted feelings watching this movie. Mm -hmm. I was like, "How am I supposed to feel here? I don't know." But it's cool that she's. I mean, it speaks to her acting skills that she can, you know, make you adore her as in princess diaries as the princess and then here make you absolutely just skeeved out with how oh. icky she can play oh th those teeth the, the teeth when like when especially when she hasn't like gone like full witch mm -hmm. but they they manipulate her mouth just enough to you go n n n the jaws aren't supposed to 
the, it, that's not <laughs> supposed to work wrong. that way. Yeah. And it, cause it, it, it gets really subtle until it like goes like full on, like, you know, sh- jaw, shark teeth, you know, giant jaw. And I just love the fact that they hint at it just a little bit by little bit as the ball scene goes on until it just like, you go, oh, oh yeah, no, 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 oh, no, that's no. The one thing I'll add though that I, it bothered me a little was being a fan of the other one as well. I liked how they used practical effects in the previous mm-hmm. movie to disguise the witches um, and to do, you know, the way that their heads looked and everything. It was all actually um, with special effects makeup and, you know, um, scar pieces and things like that. And this, you know, all being CGI to me, I felt like you lose a little bit of the magic that made it a little extra creepy. And to your point, Christy, I felt like what I, the, the stills that I've seen of, I like the way you put it, the more the goblin look of the witches, because, yeah. you know, they're supposed to, in the, in, in both in the book and in the 90s version, they're supposed to like peel their faces off because they're masks. And that's actually in the book. And so the look that I've seen that the witches had in the 90s version is closer to the way Quentin Blake's illustrations looked in the novel. So credit okay. to the 1990 movie, I feel like they nailed that look. I think this movie probably wanted to do something different to distinguish itself, but I, I'll co-sign what you're saying. Yeah, I really thought, you know, uh, like you, Scott, I mean, I've been a huge fan of Anne Hathaway since, like, The Princess Diaries or Ella Enchanted, you know, uh, and all the way to now and and I felt like you know she's she's done so many different things but to see her really just go big for the all out villain you know I thought was really fun I I felt like she was enjoying herself the whole time you could tell she was having a magnificent time just chewing up scenery with this ridiculous accent and everything and and I think that's what makes it fun you know I I feel like anybody who would who would get on her with her accent or the over the top nature of this doesn't understand what type of story we're telling. Cause that's the point of this type of story. Uh, and so I thought she was really good. And, and I, you know, I thought that the look and the feel of just the witches themselves works pretty well. Um, I, and I think Christy, you'd probably be surprised. I'm, I'm sure there's probably more practical felt effects than we're aware of um, in the movie. But I also think they blend so much these days with cgi it's hard to tell when something's practical and when something's digital because that happens mm-hmm. a lot um so but um to me it it worked well enough and man when she pulls that like worm thing out of her head and then like eats it is it like that was just nasty yeah so yeah i was glad that was not a practical effect so because <laughs> it was just gross it could be a gummy worm uh, Exactly. exactly what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um what did you guys you know what did you guys think of Octavia Spencer as grandma? She can give me a warm hug anytime and she can fix me that cornbread and that fried chicken whenever she feels like. I mean, seriously, my wife and I watched this movie together and I was just like, we just looked at that food going, mm, we got a little hungry watching this movie. But I have always enjoyed Octavia Spencer and anything that she's in. Even if I don't particularly enjoy the movie she's in, I still enjoy her because she just radiates warmth. 
And she's just a joy to watch. Well, except for that horror movie she did, then she doesn't radiate so much warmth. I actually haven't seen that movie, so I, 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 I played fifth <laughs> to that because, no, I did not see, what was that called, like, Maw or something like yeah. that? <laughs> I, I actually want to see it because I love Octavia Spencer so much. <laughs> but, yeah, it, she is so captivating in everything she's been in. I, I think the first thing I ever saw her in was The Help, um, and then I, I really wanted to see Ma, and I still haven't, and that reminds me I need to see it. But um, I love her as the grandmother in this. I think that she's really great at being the character that's teaching her grandson about dealing with death and dealing with tough things in life and not necessarily being the what you would think of as the you know way a grandmother would usually handle that kind of thing. I like that she has that scene with him in the kitchen where she's telling him, I'm not going to feel sorry for you. It is a terrible thing that happened and we're going to get through it together. But sometimes things like this happen and it's a really great teachable moment for kids. I would think that would watch this as well to find out that everything in life is not going to be perfect, but you're still going to be able to get through it. You know, there's still this positive message out of it. Um, and yeah, she just, she was brilliant. I, and I like too that you mentioned Scott as well, her having that back and forth with the grand high witch and not that not being originally in the story. Um, I think that it was a good addition. I, I kind of wish they had been able to give more background to it to make it mean a little more to me, but I like that it was added. Yeah. I think, you know, she's, she's just so good. And like, Scott, you, you mentioned you just take a warm hug from her anytime, and I, I feel like that's what she brings to the role. Um, but as you mentioned too, Christy, there's this no nonsense to her. You know, like she is kind of more of a classic grandma figure, which is they love you, but they're also going to love you with some tough love too, right? You know, and that's something I feel like movies and, and anything related for kids has really lost the idea that we need to like help kids understand the real world instead of like coddling them and she doesn't coddle her grandson at all but she still loves him with all that she is which is beautiful you know and yeah i would take that cornbread any day it looked so delectable i was like mm -hmm. oh that's some southern cooking right there that i've been missing so. it was so thick it was so thick <laughs> it and was fluffy. a cake it was a cake i loved it my, my wife and i hit last word it's like cake and like yes ma'am yes ma'am it yeah. is <laughs> <laughs> so i i really i felt like th that she was kind of the perfect person to play the role as they had written it you know she really pulls it off uh and i, I think she brought back to uh children's filmmaking a type of adult that's been missing for a while which is someone who's there to help kids grow up to be adults not kids to grow up to be big kids. And She's got one scene like that with the with the boys who play her sons in Hidden Figures. I remember like when she takes the library book mm -hmm. and she says, "My taxes pay for this. I can take this book." And and and, I, and and that bus ride home from the library in Hidden Figures, I really feel like has like it's like a microcosm of what she does here. Yeah, that's a great point. Um he his role is not as big as I would have liked it to be because I really like Stanley Tucci, 
uh, especially in something like Easy A, uh, where he's just phenomenal. Um, but he was great here uh, in in the role as the hotel manager, as, as the guy who's just trying to make everybody happy at the hotel and doesn't realize that he's just welcomed a coven of witches into his hotel uh, for their, you know, evil plan party. I appreciated that, one, while he did a slight Southern Gentleman accent, he did not go overboard with it. He he hinted at Southern Gentleman. I was also, I will, I will be very surprised, I was wondering, because of the setting, both in place and time, the fact that Octavia Spencer just walks into this hotel, I was really wondering how they were going to deal with that. Like, were they going to address, I mean, you had the, you had the staff being primarily black and there is this sense from the staff of, oh my goodness, you know, here, here's this lady who just walks in like she owns the place. And I, you can criticize it for maybe not being historically accurate, but I also appreciate the fact that they didn't use the manager to be a a cartoon caricature of a racist of the period they just they they didn't go there and i'll I'll say that i appreciated that that they did make him just a manager treating her like another customer especially since they've established that she's kind of royalty in that her was it a cousin or whoever was the chef there? Like, I, I thought that was the perfect segue to make it, quote, okay, that she was just walking around this hotel, considering the place and time. Absolutely. And, and I think, like you said, Scott, that they made a good point of saying that it's her family member is an award winning chef and is the head chef at this hotel. So it's not just like, oh, I've got a family member that happens to work there. So yeah, then it makes more sense as well. But yeah, I think that it was a good choice to make it not have the hotel manager be that kind of character um, and be offensive, just because it may have been more historically accurate in reality. It doesn't mean that you need to have that in a movie. Yeah. And I just think he's... He's a great character actor because he brings that to all of that to life really well without having to have a ton of screen time. You know, uh, Stanley Tucci that just has that. Yeah. So, yeah, he's absolutely that good. So I, I, I think they did a great job in casting him. I really liked Jazir Kadim Bruno, who plays, and he doesn't even have a name. He's just Hero Boy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I thought he was really fun, um, and I think he did a great job of portraying not only the side of things where he's getting to be the hero boy, but I thought he did a great job with, as we talked about earlier, Scott, that kind of melancholy nature that he has to be able to pull off where he is just, he doesn't want to eat. He doesn't even really want to sleep. He doesn't really want to do anything. He is lost in sadness and i thought he pulled that off really well and that's the most important part because you don't you need him to go on the journey from being um somebody who's lost an incredible amount to being somebody who uses that as an impetus for change that allows him to be able to deal with the change that he's got and i thought 
that was fantastic. And it partnered really well with Chris Rock being the older hero who's narrating this whole thing. And I thought the two together, they made for a fantastic uh, uh, character. Like they, 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 mel- they melded well as a character. And as a child actor, I thought he particularly shined when he was doing the voiceover work for his mouse version. Because I'm even going to be honest, I even think his performance was even, I don't know, even more entertaining or more lively when he was the mouse. Which I think is a credit, especially for a child actor as a voiceover actor. Because let's be honest, most voiceover acting, when you have a child character, it's an adult. I mean, they don't get – they don't often get children to do the voiceover work. And sometimes when they do, you know, you kind of suck it in and grit your teeth a little bit and not him at all. Like, he, he kind of, like, came alive, especially the way they animated the mouse to his voice. So I was – I was very pleased. I mean, you know – Children actors are just like it, – it's the crapshoot you take when you get a child actor. You can either get some amazing ones and then you can you can get some winners, air quotes. So I was very happy with how this turned out, especially since he is the protagonist of the movie. You need a child actor who has the chops to carry the movie. And in this case, carry the movie both as the boy and as the boy's mouse. 100%. That's the same thing I was thinking, that if he isn't great at what he's doing, then everything else could fall apart. And I love that he's also so great at, like you were saying, Matt, like playing the vulnerability and the pain that you would go through as a child in that situation in life, having lost your parents in an accident. And yet still being able to play the scenes well where, you know, he's supposed to be happy-go-lucky going to train his mouse and meeting Bruno in the hallway um, seems like things are starting to get better for him. And then be able to turn around and play a mouse. I, I was really impressed. And I think that he, especially in the beginning with not being able to eat and things like that, moved me the most emotionally of any character of the whole movie. Yeah, that's that's a great point, um, you know, and I, I hadn't even necessarily thought about that, Scott, and I don't know why, but you're absolutely right for a child actor to be able to pull off playing the animated character, which is just voiceover work, was was really well done, and it didn't seem like there was interdif- any differentiation between the two, mm-hmm. which is really what you want, um, and I've, I think you're absolutely right, he's... And I, th- I think one of the things is, is that, you know, he gets to be more entertaining and fun loving as the mouse than he does as the boy, too. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he has that opportunity where he doesn't get that opportunity, uh, you know, beforehand. So I think it, absolutely. I just I love um, I love it. I think uh, it's it's really well done. Um, and, you know, um, I I. Again, having Chris Rock then play the older version, I think all of that really worked very well. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, great stuff um, all around from everyone involved. Uh, and, you know, I think um, that's that's the joy of, like, I feel like that's kind of the joy of doing this. Um, 
is uh is them getting to do something different you know maybe than it was done in in the 1990s version so uh Cody Lee Eastick, who plays Bruno Jenkins, the little English boy who's turned into a mouse. Um, wow, he was really funny. Like exceptionally funny as the 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 classic, like slightly overweight English boy who is always hungry um and always finding himself in trouble. Uh and I've I just found him kind of hysterical the whole time. Um, and, you know, I will say it was kind of a cliche, right? You know, he's kind of a cliche character. But I just, I laughed a lot with his character. I thought he was just really funny. So I thought that was an interesting change from the book. Because, yes, he's always hungry in the book. But he is also a entitled brat in the book. Think about some of those particularly nasty children from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And that is who Bruno is in the book. So I thought it was interesting that they definitely went a route to make him a much more likable character and more. And he's still the comic relief no matter what, but he's more lovable comic relief than, you know, comic relief because he's the mean nasty little child who turns into a mouse and we laugh at his misfortune the closest you come to that is when he comes into the ballroom and the grand high witch has you know he's, he's demanding his chocolate that's as close as he comes in this film version to being as demanding and self-entitled as he actually is throughout the book so i was very curious christy how is that character played in the 90s version and I will say it's been a little while since I've seen it, but I believe that they actually did the same treatment as they did for Bruno in this movie in the 1990 movie. So they made him a, a more likable character that's more of a friend to the hero than, um, you know, like you were saying, laughing at his misfortune. Um, I do want to add something I thought was kind of funny was I kept thinking he, this actor looked really familiar. He looks to me so much like uh, Harry Melling, who played Dudley in the Harry Potter movies. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I instantly didn't like his character because he reminded me of that mean kid. <laughs> but doesn't, but doesn't, um, I almost felt like also his mother reminds you of Fiona Shaw, who played Aunt Petunia in the Harry Potter movies. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like Roald Dahl has a a proclivity for writing annoying children that you might not feel as bad for if something like not so great happens to, like in the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or, you know, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes. And and Chrissy, you (laughs) like Violet. Um, So, you know, Again, I he right. He's just got this ability to write these type of characters that, like, if something happens to you're don't you're not actually feeling all that bad for. Which is that a bad thing to say that about a kid in a movie? Um, I don't but know. He's it's really like good at writing those characters, right? It's kind of like it's kind of like thinking about. I mean, C.S. Lewis did the same thing. Think of like Edmund in Lion, mm, the Witch, and yes. the Wardrobe, or yeah. um, Eustace in Dawn Treader. You know, it's like it's they, true. I think it's a British thing. I really do. <laughs> There's always that one kid you don't really like. <laughs> I yeah, I think you um 
I do think you kind of nailed it. You're right. Uh, that is exactly who Eustace is. Uh, that's exactly who Edmund is. And you, the, these little brats that you can't stand that you want to see get their comeuppance, which isn't that, uh, as we kind of talked a little bit earlier, you know, Bruno's character is representative of something that we used to, I think, traditionally find irrehensible in children to act in that kind of way. Whereas, you know, it became kind of the thing uh, when I think uh, as I was growing up, um, you know, you started to get the kids being brats that it was okay. You know, like uh, I think of like Home Alone, you know, Kevin's a brat. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and we all found it funny. Um, and it was like kind of celebrated. Whereas, you know, these type of movies don't celebrate that type of behavior, you know. And so it, it's, it's really interesting to me, the, the differences we see um, in, in the way stories are told and the way people are portrayed, especially even children are portrayed. So, Well, it goes back to something you said at the beginning of the podcast, which was that sort of torchbearer of Grimm's fairy tales, which the whole point of those original stories was to scare the crap out of children because if you go back and look at the stories, it's the mean, nasty people and the mean, nasty children who get killed or maimed or eaten or or any of that. I mean, it's something that when you talk about the Disneyfication of these old fairy tales is that you lose. They when you find out what really happens to Little Red Riding Hood, or you find out what really happens to the Wicked Stepsisters and Cinderella, mm-hmm. or Hansel and Gretel, like, these were not good people, and they came to an end that, narratively, the story would say, well, they deserve, because they had it coming. Right, or uh, this will happen to you if you're a naughty child. Yes. <laughs> the moral to the story is be a good kid and you won't have this happen to you. <laughs> like, I love that they added in here. And, and maybe you can tell us, Scott, if this was in the book, too, because I don't remember. Uh, don't take candy from strangers. <laughs> yes. Was that in the book? Well, I'm not sure if it came out that way, but yet the whole plan about making the most wonderful candy stores and all of the world, you know, the whole idea of it being of the mouse maker being in candy that they're going to sell is absolutely some it's something that, you know, that's how they get you. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, yeah, I, I it's these subtle moral messages that I feel like. Adults either miss or they blow off. But I'll tell you, those are the messages that like the kids latch on to. Like it's like it they they might not seem like that big of a deal, but I'll tell you that that's what a six year old or a seven year old like that's what sticks with them when they watch something like this. It scares you straight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. It, it's the morals, meaning, and messages that we used to put in the kids' movies. You know, it's the reason that George Lucas wrote Star Wars specifically. You know, he even says it in one of his early interviews uh, about the idea that this was meant to teach kids things that they weren't being taught anymore, you know? And we used to do that through fairy tales and stories and those kind of things. And so uh, I think um, that's really... Uh, something that is is lost, and we get here with this storytelling. Um, you know, I <laughs> I remember um, uh, in my brain the moment that Daisy speaks, 
uh, who turns out to be Mary, I was like, that's Christian Chenoweth. And I love Christian Chenoweth. Um, and so I was really glad to have her here in the movie playing this role. And as she does always, she was fantastic. My wife totally called. I didn't catch it before my wife did. My wife like, isn't that 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 singer, that really famous singer? And I, and I, and when she said that, I went, "Oh my god, it's Christian Chenoweth!" I, I did. I had no idea she was in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I didn't catch it actually until I was reading the credits. So uh, good on you guys for recognizing the voice, but it was so different to me than what I'm used to hearing from her. For me, anyway, it I didn't catch it. She, I watch a few things that she's been in, um, Pushing Daisies being one. Um, and so I'm quite just familiar with her voice in general. And she has a pretty distinctive voice. Yeah. You know, so, um, but yeah, I just kind of love that she is in this movie. Like, I really enjoy her when she's in things and i thought she was kind of the perfect um because she has a slightly older sounding voice even though she can still kind of play she can still play kid Mm -hmm. um and but it, it made it nice to for because she's been this this mouse longer so it kind of i don't know for some reason too i just felt like that really worked as well um to kind of have her have a slightly older sounding voice um, than the others. So, yeah, I just I just loved it. I like I just love Kristen Chenoweth anyway. So um, for it was me, really fun to have her for me, it wasn't the performance I took issue with. Like I said, this was a change from the from the source material. That's not a thing in the book. I was curious and maybe you guys can talk can can, can talk some sense into me. It's one of those cases, however, in film adaptations where they make a change from the source material. And I personally didn't see why the change needed to occur unless it was to give another female kid. Like, like it's kind of the I almost call it like the Harry Potter formula, the two boys and the girl, because mm-hmm. you see in Harry Potter, you see in Percy Jackson. You know, they even did like a young James Bond book series. Like there was a thing in YA where it was like two boys and a girl. Like this is the formula we follow when it comes to our protagonists. And I felt like they were following that because personally, I I didn't see why you needed Mary to also be a kid turned into a mouse. But that was that was just me. And I I agree with you on that, Scott. I think that maybe the reason why they added that piece to the story was just that they felt like they needed some kind of reason for her to be there other than just being the pet mouse that now also talks. Um, But yeah, I mean, from what I remember, too, in the previous movie, I don't think there even was a third kid or mouse or anything. I think it was just the two boys the entire time. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, to be fair to in that one, the grandmother didn't really have a role. So I'm glad for those kind of changes. But it, yeah, I, I wish that Kristen Chenoweth had been able to have more of a role um, is what I want to get at, because I think that this other mouse wasn't necessary. And good point too, Scott about the formula. Actually, <laughs> we recently reviewed Enola Holmes and they had the same thing, two brothers and a younger sister. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't think she was necessary, honestly. Yeah, I don't I don't think she's necessary per se. Um 
I think I just uh, I find her fun in the in the role. Like I don't I don't know. Um, it was it was interesting to have her be a part of the story and the surprise. I think I think more than anything to me, the surprise worked that she could talk. Like mm-hmm. because I don't know what's coming. You know, that uh, I think it makes more sense to, you know, uh, to me, at least story wise, for her to be uh, another kid in, uh, that's been turned into, you know, a mouse. And because if she had just talked and that wasn't the case, I'm like, OK, now we're in a really weird thing that doesn't seem to necessarily make sense with the rest of the world. Like, yes, I get that there are witches in this world, right? But mm-hmm. it still would seem weird to me that all of a sudden mice could talk, right? Well. Like you didn't that know all like... animals talk, <laughs> right? That, that that to me that seems like where that's where you kind of almost like jump the mouse, I guess. So, <laughs> uh, that where it's like, yeah, that that's just that that would be too much for me. So I don't. Does that make any sense? Does that yeah. does that help at all, Scott? No, no, I know. I, I get. I mean, if you're going to make that choice, I, I think Christy, I think Christy made a good point that helped me out. It was like. It justifies the mouse being there because in the book, pretty much once the boys get turned into mice, his pet mouse just kind of like exit stage left and like, right, right, right. He's not care about it, (laughs) but there was one thing I meant to bring up. Um, I do wish that in a couple of parts that the script writing had been a little better because Although I know that the story is directed at kids, it felt like even for kids that they were repeating themselves too much. Did you, uh, either of you get that feeling? Like I'm thinking of specifically when um, the hero is first turned into a mouse and meets his grandma again. And he says, I was turned into a mouse. And she says, you were turned into a mouse. And he said, yes, I was turned into a mouse. And I'm like, do we have to say it three times? Okay, I will admit that was a, that was a scene that I agree like that was as close that that whole sequence right there was as close as the movie I felt came to being condescending yeah to the audience. Like even Octavia Spencer's performance was just a little was a little much in that you could tell that she was acting to, you know, tennis balls or nothing like i i felt like it just it lost some of its authenticity in in the performance in that one particular scene so i i would completely um co-sign with you on that okay so it wasn't just me it wasn't just like it was not just you're saying there i i think i think you know some any any kids movie you have to be careful for sure with with how you're writing it and you don't want to you don't want to dumb it down too much kids aren't stupid you know and sometimes we write like kids are stupid and that's just not the case like kids are smart you know like if we and we if we treat them as smart uh then we don't have to dumb things down right like there's no (laughs) reason to do that so why would we do it in the first place so i no, i i agree with you christy i i think that's that's a great point so um so we've kind of talked a little bit about this whole idea, and I think it's something that, you know, Christy, even as we mentioned um, when we were talking about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea last week, you know, that was a movie about dealing with with um, death and pain. 
Uh, and this movie has that too, where you're having to deal with the pain of change. Um, and watching Hero Boy lose his parents. And I, just to me, it really struck me how this movie talks to children about death. About, and, and, and the way the grandmother tries to help explain this to her grandson, which is, look, we may never know why this happened, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't a reason for it and it didn't have a purpose. We just may never know what it is, you know? And, and I, I felt like um, this whole idea of um, tying into kind of like our traditional understandings of, of um, life and, and spirituality and those type of things was really kind of a beautiful thing. Uh, and I don't know, Scott, if that's part of the original book at all, but uh, I thought it worked really well here. And again, as we mentioned, I think that this just really ties into them um, going for a much more traditional feeling film. Uh, I think I think um, it just in, in general, this just feels like a much more traditional film. Uh, and I think it really works and it, it succeeds on levels that I haven't seen in a movie for kids work in a really long time because it it's tying back into important things for kids to to deal with like change and death and like big life changes you know like in some ways him turning into a mouse also kind of feels like it could be akin to like growing up right you know and and you know becoming a teenager and then becoming an adult you know um but it, Two, it also tied into the whole idea of, you know, things like she was talking to him, you know, things happen and we don't know why they happen. Um, but, but there's, there's always a reason for that. And I thought, um, you know, him turning into a little mouse, um, ended up working out to teach him, um, him having his parents die. Uh, kind of helped prepare him for this other massive life change that was just about to come for him that we didn't know where he was going to be turned into, uh, you know, a, um, a mouse. And, and so I, I just thought the whole thing, all those thematic elements to me worked really well. I, I was really surprised how well they worked in this movie. I appreciated the fact that it, tr it dealt with the parents' death with some level of depth. Uh, because the, I'll be honest, the book just kind of, okay, the parents are dead. I'm with my grandma now. Like that, that was just in the book. It, this sounds so, um, callous, but like the parents dying was just the vehicle to get him to his grandmother. Like that's basically how it's treated in the book. Like there, there's nothing to deal with there. I, personally, sometimes I, I get a little, um, I, it can sometimes rub me the wrong way when they want to deal with the idea of death and change. Like it, it, it always has to have a purpose. It always has to have a reason. What I appreciated more was the, you might not, it, yes, it stunk. It's awful. You got to keep going. You know, I, and that was a message that I really appreciated was pick yourself up, dust yourself off. You can be sad. You can mourn. 
there's an appropriate period of time for that. But at some point, you got to put one foot in front of the other and you have got to keep living. They died and it's and it's a tragedy. But you're still alive. Don't let this kill you too. And I thought for for very stark ideas, I thought they handled it very well for a kid's movie. Yeah, it, it, it's so funny. You said exactly what I was thinking, that they did die and it's horrible, but you're still alive. And that it's something that unfortunately a lot of people have to go through and figure out and it doesn't mean that we know right now how we're going to get through it necessarily but that you still have the opportunity to live a full life and you need to do your best to take that on and go with it um and that they still had each other you know at least he didn't get left completely alone he still had his grandmother so i I like that there was that piece of it um but yeah i think you're both exactly right that it it deals so well with a really tough subject of trying to show kids how to get through huge life changes like that that could happen or um even just (laughs) like you're saying matt in a little bit lighthearted way of you know then further change of turning into a mouse (laughs) which I still kind of feel sad that I, I was thinking for some reason they later got changed back into humans at the in the previous movie, but apparently not. I was wrong. So that part's a little sad, too. But then, you know, he lost his parents. He's living with his grandmother and then he gets turned into a mouse forever. <laughs> but hey, he's still alive. And he gets to go hunt witches. And isn't that True. so much fun? Yes. And the cat even got its vengeance. That that was unexpected. I was I that was pretty fun. Got a little dark again with that one. So that's gosh, that's something that it just really strikes me is is interesting. You know, this whole thing um, to me is uh, watching through this. I was really um, brought to how much this movie reminded me of old classic movies that I kind of grew up with. You know. Like, um, and I really, in, I just really enjoyed the film in that way. And, you know, I enjoyed that we, we were kind of looking to make that type of movie, you know, which I think kind of makes sense when I think about Robert Zemeckis and what he does, you know, with his films, there is a sentimentality to it, um, and a reality to it. Like when I think of what he did with, um, the Polar Express, mm-hmm. you know, that, that movie talks a lot about some of these realities of like growing up and belief and faith and those kind of things. So it's really interesting to have this movie kind of talk about some of those things from just a slightly different angle, you know? Um, but it, again, it, it makes sense because this is it's something we've seen Zemeckis do before. Uh, and so I'm really fascinated, you know, as we've talked through this now, I, I'm kind of on the, I'm, I'm actually literally on the edge of my seat right now. Um, wondering what you guys think about and how, what you would rate, uh, this movie. Scott, you want to go first? I guess I will. I, I, cause I remember I even did it in my letterbox when I watched it, uh, last week when it came out, but I think I would give it three and a half chocolate bars out of five. Delicious. Okay. 
Don't I just, eat the pea soup, by the way. It, oh, you know, there's not. Why? No, get get the jambalaya. I mean, seriously. <laughs> when those are your options, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, always go for the jambalaya. What about you, Christy? So I'll be similar, um, but slightly lower just for the, you know, the couple things I mentioned. I do a three out of five um, mouse maker potions because I love those little purple bottles. So cute. Uh, I just, you know, it, it was those couple things with like the, a little too much CGI, the, the occasional script writing issue with feeling like it was a little condescending even for a kid's movie. Um, but overall still a story I enjoy and I keep meaning to go back and reread the other books. So I need to actually finally read the book for the witches and not just watch the movies. (laughs) Which also reminds me that I, a conversation that I want to I want to bring full circle. They did a stop motion of James and the Giant Peach. Mm-hmm. Why didn't we remember that at the beginning when we were talking about stop motion? Yes, you're absolutely right. Good which point. we may have to cover sometime because I love James and the Giant Peach. Me too. Uh, are you out of your mind? Um. Anyway. Uh. So, I I'm right there with you, Scott. I think uh, it's three and a half out of five. You know, I I feel like um. You know, this is a, it's a good movie, you know? Um, and I think it's above average as a, as a kid's movie too. Uh, I think this is a great movie for families. You know, this is the great, as great movie to watch with your kids and have a great time. It's a fun new addition, I would say, to the Halloween season. You know, it's a little bit scarier, but you know, it's super fun. Uh, and it's not too scary for just about any part of the family. I mean, uh, you know, depending on, on your child, some, some children may find it a little bit more scary than others, you know, and that's to, to be expected. Um, but yeah, all in all, you know, I, I didn't really know what to expect in all honesty. And so the fact that I come out of this, in a movie that's not made for me, like, you know, it's really made for kids coming out of it with a three and a half, I think is fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in a world where, in a world where we haven't had new films in months, uh, it was nice to watch something new. So, <laughs> but as everybody knows, it's now going to be time for recommendations. And Scott, since you are the guest, I feel like you should go first. Well, in keeping with the season, because let's be honest, we still have a few more days of October and Halloween. I want to do a recommendation within a recommendation because I want to recommend that everyone should go check out Literarily Wasted is an online book club that I've been a member of since the beginning. Some friends of mine from high school started it. You can find it on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter at Literarily Wasted. The members choose a book every month. And for the month of October, and it's a shame that I had not read this before, we've been reading Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Hmm. And I am a del- I am a huge Bradbury fan. I met him when I was 11 years old. Got a copy of Fahrenheit 451 autographed and I just fell in love with the man. Something Wicked This Way Comes is one of these great, dark, fantastical books that deals with nostalgia and good versus evil, but also is written in the most poetic, figurative way. I mean, you you wonder if anyone could just capture what autumn and October feels like on the page. 
Bradbury does it in this book. And I could highly recommend it. I read it in like a week. I couldn't put it down. And actually, a couple of days ago, I just watched Walt Disney Pictures did a film adaptation in 1983 with Jason Robards and Jonathan Price that I had never seen before. It's only available on DVD. I bought it for eight bucks on Amazon and I watched it. And it just, it's like, it's just, if you want to feel October, Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Okay, that sounds Very really cool. cool. <laughs> that was a really good yeah. recommendation. I feel like mine are never that interesting, even though I think the material is. So, good job. I, I love a good book recommendation, too. So, that's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, and I'm actually going to throw out something a little different for me, um, but keeping with the theme of October, something a little spooky. Um, my husband got me started watching a new show actually on the DC app. Um, since we have Scott here as well, I thought something DC would be fitting. Um, and uh, it's called Doom Patrol. And I love Doom Patrol. <laughs> so it, it's interesting because sometimes I have to take a bit of a break because sometimes the material could just be so heavy that it's a lot and I can't just binge it. I need to take a time out and come back to it. But it's so interesting. It's a really um like a generally dark story, but it has some funny moments and uh FYI, Brendan Fraser gets to debut again in this. So I highly recommend checking out the Doom Patrol TV show on the DC app or it may be moving now to HBO Max, actually. Season two was actually co-released on both the DC Universe app and HBO Max. And now that all the shows are moving over to HBO Max because the DC app is becoming just a comic reader. Yeah, it is. It is touted. It was the first show that HBO Max was like, no, we want that. Yeah, because it's good. It's good. <laughs> it is. I honestly would say it may be the most insane thing I've ever seen. Like, Pretty weird. Legitimately. <laughs> uh, yes. I, I actually haven't seen season two yet, but I will get to season two. I've just been so busy with other things that yeah, uh, I haven't got a chance to watch it yet, but... No, that's awesome. Um, you know, uh, I was talking to uh, a good friend of ours, Christy, uh, from Celebration, Sean, uh, mm -hmm. and um, from we we also follow each other on Twitter. And this is where I saw that he had just watched for the first time the original Rambo, First Blood, and I had never seen Rambo, <gasps> so I thought, well, hmm. So I was at walmart and uh, they had it for like 14 something f uh for 4k so i was like eh, that's not a bad deal i mean it's not that much more than renting it so uh i highly recommend first blood if you've yes. never seen it it is surprisingly good i've never seen it so you're like you're literally the second person in three days and i'll to mention first blood everybody's to me. like scott you need to see rambo you do first blood um man uh and and because of that we're actually going to cover all the rambo films uh from start to finish next year christy and i talked about that and john mills is going to join us for that series so um really excited uh so yeah 
if you've never seen First Blood, start with us. We're going to be starting there in January, and so uh, we would love to have you. Uh, you know, watch along with us, and 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 if you have seen it, it's a good reason to go back and rewatch it again. Um, before we get to anything else, I did want to—I totally forgot—I just added the 602 Club on Letterboxd. So if you're on Letterboxd, mm-hmm. you can follow the podcast and see every single uh, movie that we've covered. I went through and added it chronologically, so all the times are correct, like when the episode actually dropped. All the review sections uh, for that film have the link for the episode so you can find it. Uh, and so you can follow along with the podcast now on Letterboxd. So please go over to Letterboxd and it's just Letterboxd at the 602 Club. So uh, we'd love to have you follow along there. But Scott, as always, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Uh, I'm really glad that you wanted to join us with this one. And, and I think it was you know, phenomenal that you, you had read the book and Christy had seen the original movie and I had done neither. So you guys made up for all of my, you know, lack. Um, so thanks for coming back. And where can everybody find you? Because I know you've got a ton going on. Well, of course, you can find me personally on Twitter at ScottDC27. Feel free to follow and chat me up. I love talking movies, comic books, Alabama football. You know, it. I have, I have, it's a plethora of discussion that can happen. Of course, you can also follow my podcast, DC Film Squadcast, on Twitter at DC Film Squadcast or wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can find DC Film Squadcast. We're also on Vero, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and of course, you can find the entire network over at www.squadcastmedia.com. Awesome. And uh, of course, you can find me as well on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And when I'm not here on the 602 Club with Matt, I do a show with my friend called Sabres and Spells with my friend Teresa Delgado. And uh, we talk about Stranger Things, uh, My Little Pony, a million other geeky things under the sun. So look forward to doing that one again soon. And, of course, uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Pharaoh, under the name MattRushing02. Of course, I'm here in the network doing literary treks as well as The Orb with Chris Jones. Literary treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Don't miss that. Just recently, we uh, interviewed Kirsten Beyer about her last Star Trek Voyager book, To Lose the Earth. It's an interview you don't want to miss. And, um, of course, The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, two shows, one's Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills. Uh, this week we finish up our commentary series for The Mandalorian Season 1, so you can be ready for Season 2. Uh, and then, of course, doing Outpost with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. But, you know what? Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now you hear. Thank you.